1: you know, Jack used to tell me I need to look more mature. I'm like, but Jack, that's just, this is just how I look. Like, I can put on makeup, I can dress more formally, but I'm still going to look like I'm in my mid-20s.
0: You're listening to Crazy Smart Asia, a podcast exploring the unexpected stories of Asia's disruptors. I'm your host, Tamara Lemunier. Like most successful startup stories, Lucy Liu's Airwallex was created to solve a problem. In this case, Lucy's friends and eventual co-founders, Jack Jang and Max Lee realized that high foreign exchange rates were damaging the profit margins of a small cafe they ran in Melbourne back in 2015. The idea was simple enough – to use technology to make B2B cross-border payments simpler and cheaper. The execution? Not so straightforward. Within just a few years, the team went from cafe owners to the founders of a fintech giant, with the potential to disrupt the global financial system. Lucy says she's always been the unconventional one, breaking stereotypes and prejudices and only focusing on the work, which enabled her to grow her startup to unicorn status by the age of 28. Lucy talks to Gentee editor Lee Williamson about sticking to your vision, but knowing when to compromise, and why people still don't believe she's a tech founder. Here's her conversation.
2: Can you talk about the early days um, when you were formulating the idea for Airwallex? Um, can you take me to the most important decision that you made, that made Airwallex what it is today, and, and how you came to that decision?
1: So, let me just go back a bit about, you know, how we first started. So, um, my co-founders Jack and Max had a cafe in Melbourne, um, back in 2015, and they were importing a lot of goods from China. And the early concept of air basically came from their experience of, um, receiving very expensive foreign exchange rates and, you know, the lack of transparency that was hurting their profit margins when running the cafe. And Jack being a software engineer at that time um, in a, you know, also foreign exchange and, you know, trading sort of uh, banking industry, thought that would be a better way of solving this problem using technology. So um, the first idea that we had um, for Airwallex was a SME invoicing and FX uh, platform. But I think... Uh, That product and its concept was quite, uh, at least in our head, was something that the market needed, but we didn't really have much traction from the uh, early days because obviously as a startup, it's very hard to attract SMEs to use you and you know, there's a lack of trust and people are not very adoptive of fintechs back then. And just compared to the banks, we're not very uh, attractive despite um, all of the technology and all the efforts that we put into product development. And I think coming back to, you know, the most important decision we made was actually to throw that product in the bin and <laughs> start over. Um, and I think this was then around, uh, already nine or 12 months into, uh, the, the, like, inception of, um, you know, airwallics and, um At that time, you know, it was a very hard decision, but we thought, you know, this is something we have to do in order to survive and also uh, make it work. So um, around that time, we've received uh, our Series A investment from Tencent and uh, we already met quite a few enterprise clients who are interested in um, using our API product, which is still around payments and it's still around foreign exchange but it's uh, much more scalable so it was built for um, higher volume high frequency um, type of transactions and um, as soon as we saw that sort of took off we then decided to shift priorities to um, doing mostly just that for um, yeah that's where
2: you're at now right
1: yes Um, actually you know we're back to SME offerings now that we are um, you know into our fifth year and I think along the way um, we've learned quite a few lessons and um, despite taking sort of a detour towards the SME offering, we finally now have what is uh, the right infrastructure, the right banking partners and also, um, you know, uh, cash at hand, you know, marketing costs you know all of those things. Uh, so the timing is better. For us to um, tar- retarget that SME sector.
2: Right. So that's, uh, that's a hell of a long journey from, uh, Melbourne cafe to, a uh, billion dollar fintech, uh, startup. Do you ever think back to those days things that you learned, lessons learned in, the, in those super early days? How did that inform you? Does, is it comparable even things that you learned back then to because of the scale on which you're operating now?
1: Um, I think. What we always knew that is very core to Wallace and what is very important to us is our people. And, um, even when we are a tiny startup, we always had a very high standard for hiring. And sometimes people think we're a bit crazy because we do all these code tests and we require, you know, <laughs> all sorts of different things and we look for people who are only very, very good. We don't even settle for, your
2: That's um, very Silicon Valley thinking, isn't it? <laughs> that like hiring is the most important thing that you can do for your company. Well,
1: because people build the business and, you know, people build relationships that uh, our business really highly rely upon. And, um, sometimes we do make compromises, um, along the way and it turns out to be a mistake. <laughs> and then we, we think back and then we're like, okay, maybe this is, This is just too much compromising and we just need to stick to what we know best and, you know, um, but I think a lot of times it is balancing that growth and, you know, how much you're willing to settle in a way. Because if you just desperately need people and you, you can't always wait for three or six or even a year for that right person to come along and, you know, startup is not for everyone. So, you know, at different stages, people might have different risk appetite. So we might have someone who joined us maybe last year during Series C or um, this year, you know, we just uh, closed out Series D. But who, uh, someone who might not be uh, comfortable uh, if we're only, you know, a, a 10 or 20 people team. So I think, yes, yeah, it's quite different, but there are still similarities.
2: So, you know, you and your co-founders have made a lot of impact in the last um five years. Um, You know, a lot of people want to reach your level of success and don't. Um What do you think is the difference that's got you uh to where you are today? Obviously, I'm sure you feel you have a lot more, you know, to go, but you've reached a lot of success within a five-year uh, period. What has been the difference between you and a lot of other fintech startups that want to be in the position you're in?
1: So I think, not sure if an actual difference, but um, uh, basically, I think for us, we, we had a vision and we stuck to it. Despite, you know, pivoting our product to fit the market needs, I think, um, you know, we, we still um, are hopefully the same company that we were five years ago in terms of the goals and the ambitions. And, you know, even back then when we were like a four or five people team, we had very ambitious goals. We were sitting in the bank and we were telling them that we're going to be trading one billion US dollars in a year. Um, even though we were like a tiny team and back they then. I think. The room? <laughs> no, actually they're our first, um, liquidity provider and they're still supporting us till this day. So I'm very thankful for that relationship and. Um, just I guess believing that we can make it work and we've had like a whole bunch of crises and you know difficulties along the way but you know um, we came out stronger at the other end and um, the vision really is something that made us stuck through the whole process and that's a mistake a lot of startups make right if they don't have a clear vision beyond I want to
2: be successful
1: yeah, I think, you know, I've met quite a few founders who decided to change their directions based on what is, I guess, popular in the market, or, um you know, what the VCs were looking for in the market um to get the reinvestments or, you know, to appear more attractive in the media or um to draw attention to their business. And I think, strategically, that's always temporary um whatever you do it has to be longer than that and i i guess that's my advice to everyone yeah and
2: talking about going into banks and saying you're going to be a billion dollar company um you know when you're working out of of a, a cafe um what what kind of barrier did age play in those early days this is something we've talked about a little bit before i mean you know i think you reached unicorn status when you were 26 is that right
1: uh, 20 28. 28.
2: Okay. I yeah. The, the grand old age yeah. of 28. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> but obviously, you know, in the early days of the company, you were in very much in your mid twenties. Um, you know, you were going into meetings with like top execs of the world's biggest banks and telling them that you can help them, that they've missed something, that they've screwed up and that you can help them, uh, with your product. That's a challenge for anybody, but particularly someone who, who's younger to, to be taken seriously. Did you, did you see how much of a barrier, uh, was, uh, your your youth at that time?
1: Um, so I think definitely in the first couple of years, it was very difficult for me. Um, you know, Jack used to tell me I need to look more mature. I'm like, but Jack, that's just, this is just how I look. <laughs> like I can put on makeup, I can dress more formally, but I'm still going to look like I'm in my mid-20s. Um, uh, the funny thing is, I think... Uh, I grew with the business as well. So, you know, those meetings were always hard, but I know what I was talking about and I had a good positioning and, and over time, I think it is the expertise that, you know, wing people over. And also, um, you know, we had a growing team and we had investor support and having those investors on our cap table actually made a lot of difference. um, and I think I had some help that sort of made them trust me a little bit more. And, yeah, but I think young founders these days are quite common. And also because, you know, in a way, you know, the society is also evolving and, you know, founders are younger and, you know, a lot of them are in their mid-20s. As long as we know what we're doing, um, I think that's all that matters. Um <laughs> Thankfully, it's not an issue anymore, even though I'm still in my 20s. But um, now we have track record and, you know, it's definitely not so much an issue now. Um,
2: and, and speaking of funding, how um, did you get investors to believe in you despite that, um, and especially in the early days? You know, a lot of people listening to this might be entrepreneurs themselves, Um and, you know, you, you spoke about the barriers that you faced when going into those earlier meetings with your part, potential partnership meetings and investor meetings. You know, how did you, it seems like fundraising is something you've never had a problem with. Like, how did you get people to believe in you? Especially in the early days.
1: Um, so I think, yeah, you're right. It's, it's different, um, throughout the different stages. I mean, more, more recently, it's more about the, basically the metrics, right? The economics and the numbers. But in the early days, it's definitely more about the team, uh, the team that we had and also the founders. And I think a lot of times people think there are some sort of secret to fundraising. I, I don't think there is. <laughs> um, it's really about, I guess, uh, what exactly you're doing and how well you know your stuff. And, um, you know, uh, the, 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 chemistry between investors and founders are always quite interesting because we're basically asking them for money to invest in us and a lot of times people feel like that sort of put them in a more um you know difficult situation because you know basically you're asking for money right and i, th- I think confidence makes so much difference because i think when we first started airwallex It was very rare to see a B2B payment company. Um, Most of the players in the market was consumer focused and they were European or U.S. sort of companies. And we were the only sort of Asian and B2B company. So we were quite rare in that sense. And investors didn't know too much about what we're doing. And a lot of times we had to actually really sit down and tell them about the market, about the industry and its potential. So I think it's it's not so much that we're only asking for money, but we're also selling them the idea that, you know, this is something that could be a lot bigger than what it is now. And sort of offering them that opportunity to see the business grow together with us. And, you know, since then, you know, some of our investors have been investing almost every round. And it's quite interesting, too. We recently just had another board meeting and it's definitely very different to the first time that we had back in Series A. Um, yeah, so it's it's also a journey for them as well. But at the end of the day, investors look for returns. So how quickly you can grow, how big you can grow, make a lot of difference. Um Sometimes, you know, I do meet founders who tell me, oh, the market is this size. I'm like, but even if you take the whole market, it's not that big. So <laughs> I think it's really thinking from the investor's perspective um, as well. I think investors when you're are always to them.
2: wary of those market projections, especially from very early stage startups.
1: Yeah, so basically they have to be interested in the industry first. Before they actually talk to you, if they're not interested in the industry to start with, I don't think the conversation is gonna go anywhere, even if you spent you know hours telling them you know this is something that could have a lot of potential.
2: Um, so we talked a little bit about age uh, as a as a barrier to success. Um you also you know industry is fintech. Uh, which is a portmanteau of both finance and technology, two very male-dominated industries. Um, yes, the two most male-dominated industries, in fact. Um How did you navigate that, um especially in the early days? And uh, as you've made a name for yourself and a reputation for yourself in the industry, has uh gender become less of an issue? Or even was it even an issue in the first
1: place? It's actually interesting. Like, I personally never... Really like felt it, if you know what I mean. Um, until all of the, you know, different medias and, you know, were recognizing me as a female founder. I know it's a rare thing because all of the CEOs and all of the other founders I meet are male in fintech, but, um, maybe this is something to do with being, you know, you know, Chinese as well, because I feel like um, there are quite a few female um, entrepreneurs in China who are very successful. So I never really thought it was an issue until, you know, it was brought to my attention by you know external people. And at least internally, I didn't feel it um, with my co-founders. I mean, they were always very supportive. I mean, had, I had a baby, so they were very supportive. Um, and yeah so I think in a way, I want to also inspire other people in my business and others in the industry to not always think that we have as females have to live up to any you know male standards or anything like that i mean it's it's always a complementary skill set that females bring um to startups and yeah, so I think, you know, obviously there are some females who struggle with it. Um, I fully understand. It is not easy.
2: Yeah, I mean, wh- why why do you think journalists always ask you that question?
1: Um, I don't know. Like, sometimes people feel like there's bias um, in an industry where, you know, it's very male-dominated. For example, like, there's just naturally not that many female engineers compared to male engineers. I mean, we try to diversify our team as much as possible when, but in the pipeline, there's always more um, male developers compared to female developers. But you hire for the skills. You don't hire based on their gender. Um, yeah. So I think, but if you look at, you know, marketing team or even HR, it's very female dominated. Um, in terms of skill set, it's just, um, sometimes maybe people are just naturally better at certain things, um, due to their gender. I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, I talked to other, um, female execs from eBay, from other global companies, and, you know, they were forced to diversify their hiring because of the pressure that they receive, but, um, you know, they all tell me it's just a pipeline and it's just interesting. You just don't have that many females in fintech or tech. And I mean, it's, isn't it an issue? I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it isn't what problem you're solving more important? And isn't what your business is doing more important than just looking at the gender issue itself? Um,
2: yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, so I think I, there will be some people that that will think that that's an an unpopular opinion that 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 certain genders are better at certain skills. And also, you're kind of very much proof against that, aren't you?
1: <laughs> I know, but like, I feel like I have. I'm a very logical person in the sense that, um, you know, I I'm quite. Like, I have an engineering mindset sometimes. I feel, I mean, I will, I almost studied engineering when I was going into the university. Um, and when I chose finance, you know, it's not because, you know, just, there's no girls in engineering school. It's just because I had more interest in finance compared to engineering. So I think people should have, should not get I guess the stereotypes and the social views, you know, like get in the way of what they really like. And, you know, it's the pressure that we receive from society and family is enough. So, uh, moving
2: on, um, a little bit further beyond the early days, uh, when we spoke before, you told me that, um, I don't know which stage of the company this was after you'd made the, the pivot from SMEs, um, or before, but you said that you, there were, Two years where you worked on compliance and got your partners lined up um before you actually launched a product. Um so did you two years is a long time to be working on something before, you know, before you launch it, before you have validation that it works, that it's gonna make an impact on the market. Did in that in that twenty-four months, did you ever start to doubt yourself and the viability of your product? How did you have the resolve to kind of you know continue?
1: Um I think the reason that it took two years is not because things were not going the, the right direction. Everything was going towards the right direction. It's just naturally these things take a long time. And I think sort of believing, having that belief that, you know, it, it is the way that we want to go towards, um, it's sort of helped us power through that period um and in a way if you look at it i mean if another company tried to replicate the same thing they would take just as long so naturally that's a barrier of entry for you know any newcomers trying to you know compete with us in this space um which is also why we raised quite a few um rounds and you know we needed the money because it's a big project um if you think about you know the settlement networks, the the banking infrastructure that we're building, it's it's almost like building another Swift or Visa almost in the I mean it's a smaller version of that, but um we started with a very humongous project um and it's just uh what we chose to do instead of starting small and only on the application layer because that fundamentally for us doesn't change anything that is in the market. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, we, we received a lot of doubt from our board. <laughs> um, yeah, because we were, we weren't generating any revenue early on, but, um, thankfully everything worked so the out. The
2: belief was there. The belief was there. And after, the and was after there. that, you scaled very quickly. Uh, what was the secret yes. to that? Was that just because you had everything ready, set up, plug and play in those two years of, you know, of getting compliance sorted out and your partners lined up? Or is, there, or is there a secret source that you can share?
1: <laughs> Again, people, right? <laughs> um, one is we had the infrastructure in place. And two, we made some really good hires um, who are very senior sales, experienced sales in the, mar- uh, in the space. And uh, they already had uh, clients in the pipeline. And Jack and I were doing a lot of selling ourselves. So I think... Um, when your founders are representing your business, it, it makes a lot of difference um, instead of sending out just the salespeople because you can train them as much as you can. And even till now, like the really important conversations, we still know better. Um, we know more about the product. We know more about what is coming up, um, the strategy, um, you know. So I think... Um, Trying to do everything ourselves actually is a very good decision that we made back then. Right, right. But, um, yeah. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why we scaled really quickly. Right.
2: Um, you scale quickly and you also have, you know, you've established a lot of big partnerships, uh, as you said, with like, w- with big banks and everything. I mean, traditionally people think of fintech and fintech is meant to be about disrupting traditional financial institutions. I mean, you guys seem to take a different approach. I mean, um, a few months ago, you announced a partnership with Visa. Um, why is it that you decided to kind of partner with existing financial institutions rather than um, go your own way?
1: Um, so I think there are things that we can do by ourselves. There are things that we should partner with others. Um so I think it, it, it's, it's a complex topic, right? Um, we're trying to go into different markets where the banks, at least the regional and local banks already have penetration. They have like 80, 90% of the market, right? And our, I guess our competitive advantage and what we are trying to do is not replacing the banks in the local markets. We're trying to connect these local banks into a more, you know, global and more borderless sort of economy. And w- essentially I think the way to do it is not I mean the the disruption can be seen as two things. Like whether it's replacing them entirely or building something that modifies what they have into something that is modern and that's something that is user friendly and something that the companies of you know the current you know year 2020 wants to use and um, and then at the same time we were also trying to scale so I mean if you're trying to do every single thing by yourself it's it's a never-ending process.
2: Final couple of questions Uh, what makes you happy and what keeps you awake at night?
1: I think small celebrations always makes me very happy um, it shows that we care about the people that we work with and I'm a very much people, per- um, people person. I mean, I was very introvert growing up and, and I don't talk a lot. But surprisingly, I found my calling and, and you know, I always organize these things and team building things within the business and it's something that I really enjoy and it comes from my heart and I'm very passionate about it.
2: How would you describe the culture at Airwallux in one word?
1: Uh, culture at Airwall is result-driven, so we get things done, and it's uh, unfortunately very Silicon Valley as well, but, um, I mean, it, it is what it is for startups. If you don't get things done, it's it means you're not doing anything. But
2: it seems like after that, you, you, you value um, the personal side of, of work as well.
1: Yes, we do, and like I said, people build the business. And yeah, so I think what also keeps me up at night is, it doesn't really keep me up at night. I'm a very sound sleeper, unfortunately. But um I do dream a lot about people quitting their jobs very frequently, too frequently sometimes. And it's probably one of the fear that I have, I mean, having those difficult conversations and also sometimes disappointing our team because the other day we had a one-on-one with, our engi- well, with one of our engineers and he, he said that he felt very lost and then he feels like he's not contributing to the business. So I think hearing these things hurts my heart <laughs> and keeps me up at night. So we're trying to, um, in a way, keep everyone on the same page as well. So I think internal communications is something I'm working on at the moment. Um, yeah, so hopefully, you know, we can make some progress along the way. I mean, the business is growing very quickly. That's why a lot of times people feel they're left behind.
2: Right, yeah, that's something that really uh picks up, you know, when, you, when you're scaling at such speed. That's something that the, the needs of that, of internal communications, it, it changes every, every six months, if not sooner.
1: Yeah, because, you know, as the founders, because we're the – most you know we're the people in the front line and we know everything in our head but if we don't communicate to the rest of the team it's very obvious that they wouldn't know what you're thinking about in your head right so absolutely but we do sometimes feel like they should know why don't they know um but yeah it's just a lack of communications a lot of times yes
2: i think that uh yeah it's pretty common among so many people um including myself sometimes with my team like, why don't they know what I haven't told them? This is outrageous. <laughs> this is completely outrageous. Um, how, why do they not read my mind? Um, so final question. Um, you do a lot of uh, media. Um, you know, you're very much the face of your business. What is something interesting about you that most people don't know?
1: Oh, um, the interesting thing about me, let me think, it's a lot of times when people actually meet me, they don't feel like I'm a tech founder. Um, I wonder why <laughs> Did the tech founder all have to look a certain way or, you know, they have to be like Steve Jobs or, um, yeah, I'm a rare species, apparently, <laughs> you know, female tech founder doesn't have short hair now um
2: doesn't that come back to the, yeah, the so gender bias issue isn't, isn't that a sign that yeah. there is in fact bias in, in the industry that they know just...
1: but it, like sometimes people assume that even if you're a female founder you're supposed to look very techy, whatever that means so it's not just a gender issue it's a generally you know like um when someone saw uh, one of my co-founders, they, they would be like, Oh, he looks exactly like a tech founder. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, like he's wearing t-shirt and he's not wearing, you know, like it's, it's, it's a stereotype thing, I think. Um, it's actually an interesting topic.
2: I mean, so the thing that most, most people don't know about you <laughs> is that Lucy Lu is a tech founder.
1: Who doesn't look like a tech founder. Yeah, he's actually a tech founder. <laughs> believe
2: it or not, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first on our podcast. <laughs> Lucy Liu of is in fact, despite all appearances, a tech founder. All right. Well, um, thank you, Lucy, for your time. This has been a really fun conversation.
1: Yeah, great. My pleasure.
0: That's it for another episode of Crazy Smart Asia. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and please do leave us a rating and review while you're there. Gen T connects young leaders across Asia, and if you know someone who would resonate with these stories and take something from them, please do share the podcast and help bring them into our growing community of changemakers. You can also follow Generation T on Instagram, we're at at Generation T underscore Asia and Facebook. And check out our website, GenerationT.Asia, for more on the people, businesses, and ideas shaping Asia's future. See you next time.